Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Carols for the King. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. We're going to continue our Christmas teaching series called Carols for the King. Uh, today, I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Luke chapter 2. And if you uh, forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers can bring one to you. We have plenty of extra copies. We can loan you one. I uh, also want to encourage you to take out the sermon note handout that's in the worship folder you received when you came in this morning so that you can follow along with me. When I was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, I took an intro to theology class that was taught by a professor named Dr. Glenn Kreider. Uh, Dr. Kreider was a unique professor in that he taught in the classroom, but also pastored a church, a small church outside of Dallas. Uh, he taught me the importance of listening to what the world is saying about God, because the world, the whole world does theology. Theology is simply thoughts about God. Uh, the problem is, is that the world doesn't do accurate theology. It's not based on the scriptures. They think about God, they talk about God, but they make up their own versions of God. And so um, uh, Dr. Kreider would often say that if we listen to what the world is saying about God, we can lovingly respond with biblical truth about who he really is. And so one way he taught his students to do this was by playing top 40 radio songs in class. And he would have us uh, listen to the song and then discuss the lyrics. So for example, one day, uh, I remember he played a popular 90s grunge rock song. Uh, it was like Pearl Jam or Smashing Pumpkins or something like that. I didn't listen to that genre of music when it was out. But so he's, he's, he, this is about 20 years ago in Dallas, so he has an overhead projector. He slaps the lyrics on the overhead, turns it on, projects the lyrics, and he says, listen to this song, turns it up real loud, and uh, you know, it's he says, uh, listen to the lyrics, read them, and then let's talk about what is this singer saying about God. And he turns it up so loud, I mean, I felt like I was in his car with him or something, like we were going cruising, and Keep in mind, this is 20 years ago in the Bible Belt in Dallas. I was nervous the Baptist police were going to come in and shut the power off, arrest us or something. Because what he was doing was really radical. And uh, you, just didn't, you just didn't play secular music in the classroom at a conservative evangelical seminary. So he was somewhat of a kind of a radical, but um, uh, so after the song, we would discuss it, and he'd say, what is, what is this guy saying about God? And, you know, and we'd talk about, well, he's mad at God. Okay, well, why is he mad at God? Because his brother died at a young age. Oh, so what's he saying he wants to do to God? And oh, he's saying this, and so on and so forth. And so um, it, it, I'm grateful for Dr. Kreider because he taught me to think about the media I consume and to ask myself the questions, what is this song or what is this movie saying about God and about man? Because it almost always is saying something. 
And that, is, that simple exercise is part of what inspired me to do this series, to walk through some of the popular carols of Christmas and to ask the questions, what is the author saying about God, about the Christmas story, and what's he saying about us? And so uh, that simple exercise not only makes us more discerning, but I find that it can keep the Christmas season fresh for us. Because as I've been saying this month, we can... If we can learn the special meaning behind the songs of the season, then the season will remain special. Because behind every song is a message, and behind every author, there's a story. Our theme verse for this series is 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. Uh, it just captures the gospel in one sentence, uh, and the Christmas story as well. Let's read it out loud together. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This verse, along with others, such as John 3.16 or 1 Timothy 1.15, conveys the Lord's motive and the Lord's purpose in sending his only son into the world. The father was motivated by love for the lost, and he wanted to provide a way for spiritually dead people to have spiritual life again. The next carol I'd like us to unwrap together would probably fall in that second tier of popular Christmas carols. Uh, for example, if we were to do the top 25 ranking of like the top 25 Christmas carols or Christmas songs, I'm guessing I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day would probably fall between number 15 and number 20. So it's, it's not on every Christmas album but it does get airtime each Christmas season. And so with that, uh, here's a little bit of background about the song and how it came into existence. I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day was written by the famous American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Longfellow was known to be exceptionally intelligent, so much so that he graduated from Bowden uh, college at age 19, was immediately given a teaching position at his alma mater, and then by the time Longfellow was in his early 20s, his, his life tra trajectory was just ramped up. It's just like nothing could go wrong for the guy. He was, he was on his way to a great life. Uh, in 1831, he was happily married to a woman named Mary Potter. In 1834, Harvard University called him up and lured him away, or, well, they didn't have phones back then. Let me back up. They wrote him and <laughs> called and invited him to come and join their faculty and could pay him more money, and, of course, Harvard was prestigious back then, so he was already, in his early 20s, considered one of the top scholars, literary scholars, in the country. And so uh, this is a huge promotion for him. So he and Mary moved up to Harvard, in Massachusetts, in Cambridge, and the Longfellows got a beautiful home, enjoyed their newlywed life, and Henry's career was on the rise. Sadly, though, tragedy struck just one year after arriving at Harvard, when Mary died as a result of a miscarriage. It took Longfellow seven years to recover from grieving the loss of his first wife, and it was seven years later that he mustered up the courage to marry again. He married a woman named Frances Appleton. Over the next 19 years with his second wife, 
Life was really good for the Longfellows. Uh, they had five children together. Henry published some of his poetry. He received some rewards for his work, awards for his work, and uh, became very financially stable, was doing very well. But unfortunately, in 1861, tragedy found the Longfellow family again. Henry was napping, and he was suddenly awoken from his nap to find that his second wife, Frances, her dress had caught on fire while she was lighting a candle. And so he tried his best to extinguish, extinguish the flames, but she already had suffered such severe burns that she died the next morning. Longfellow himself had facial burns that were so severe that he couldn't even attend her funeral. He had to stop shaving, and he grew a beard, which he's now known for, it's kind of his trademark, uh, and he wore the beard to cover up the scar tissue from the burns. Just when one would think that a man had suffered enough pain in his life, uh, calamity struck again less than two years later when Longfellow's oldest son, Charlie, was severely wounded in the Civil War just after Thanksgiving in 1863. After bringing his son home to tend to his wounds, the doctors said that Charlie may never walk again. You could certainly understand when you hear the story and the journey of Longfellow's life why this man would write a quote that it's one of his most famous quotes. I wanted to share it with you. He wrote this in one of his books. Believe me, every man has his secret sorrows, which the world knows not. And oftentimes we call a man cold when he is only sad. And so, on Christmas Day, 1863, excuse me, this 57-year-old widowed father of five who was nursing his son's war wounds, he sat down to pour his grief out on paper. He heard the bells ringing at the local church on Christmas Day. Longfellow hated the Civil War and what it was doing to his country. He was mourning the losses his family had suffered over the years, and he was asking the question, God, where are you, and what are you doing? This is why, as you see on your sermon note handout, in verse 2, he writes, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. Almost 10 years later, a music teacher and organist named John Baptiste Kalkin married Longfellow's poem to uh, lyrics, uh, sorry, to, to music. Uh, except for the deletion of two verses that dwelled on the poet's view of the Civil War. He was adamantly against it, and Longfellow was an abolitionist. Um, other than that, the song remains intact today as it was first published. The pain in Longfellow's life and the beautiful poetry it produced, I think, 
is a reminder that the Lord does not waste anything, including our suffering. That even in our deepest struggles, the Lord has something useful he wants to bring out of it. And so here's a couple of distinctives that I've noticed about this particular carol that set it apart from others. Um, The first one that comes to mind is that unlike the other carols that we've studied this month, uh, Longfellow was not a theologian. He wasn't a monk or a priest. He he wasn't trained theologically. Um, He was a poet. He wrote poetry and books, and that's what he was known for. Uh, next, uh, the next distinctive that comes out, stands out to me, is its tone. I Heard the Bells is a very contemplative and melancholic song. As you probably have noticed, most carols are joyful and they retell the, some part of the Christmas story. Uh, but instead, I Heard the Bells is the overflow of a heart that's struggling to find joy on Christmas Day. And it doesn't retell any part of the Christmas story. You've got the lyrics in front of you. He doesn't refer to a baby in a manger or angels singing glory in the highest or anything like that. Or the incarnation. This being said, I think there's a nugget of encouragement here for anyone today who is struggling to sing the joyful songs of the season. And that is, A person like Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, he is saying, I think, through this song, you are not alone. He's saying, I was struggling too on Christmas Day, 1863. But here's what I did instead. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Another distinctive, uh, the third one, is that it's structure, the song structure. Uh, Unlike other carols and popular songs, this one does not follow the common structure of verse 1, chorus, verse 2, chorus. Uh, Instead, each verse ends with the same refrain, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. In fact, I, I, I don't think there's a chorus in the song. In order to compensate for this, some artists have recorded, when they've recorded this song or covered it, they add their own chorus in order to try and make it a little more singable, if that's a word, in today's culture. Um, Of most of the songs that we sing today that are on the radio that are popular are verse, chorus, verse, chorus, refrain, so on and so forth. When I did a quick search on Apple Music this week, uh, I was surprised to see how many artists have covered, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. And I think I was surprised uh, because it's not, it's not an upbeat, jubilant song. It, it's, it's a sad song. And so I kind of assumed that most artists would only cover the happy ones, you know, that those would sell better records and so on and so forth. But it's actually been covered quite a bit in the last 75 years. Um, Artists from nearly every genre of music have covered this song. Uh, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, Burl Ives, The Carpenters, Johnny Cash. Uh, Casting Crowns has, I think, the most popular version uh, today. If you do a Google search on the song, they're, like, they're at the top of the list. And then even the teenager, young adult band, Echo Smith, has recorded a cover of this song. 
And so with that, if you would look at Luke chapter 2 with me, I want to share with you three truths that we can glean from the song that come from the scriptures. In Luke chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. This is um, commonly called the Christmas story in the Bible. We have a tradition at our home where I read this on Christmas Eve with the kids, um, usually out of a children's Bible and then sometimes even out of an adult Bible after that. Uh, we shut all the lights out in the house, so only the Christmas lights are on. I get a flashlight, and the kids sit around me, and I read uh, Luke chapter 2. And so um, let's just pretend we're in a dark living room with the Christmas tree, and Dad's got a flashlight. All right, here we go. In, the, in, the days of decree, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased." So what truths does I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day reveal about God and about man? Well, here's the first on your outline, number one. The Christmas story makes peace with God possible. It makes peace with God possible. Longfellow wrote in, in verse one, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, the old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth and goodwill to men. This is from uh, verse 14 here in chapter 2 of your Bibles. Uh, Glory to God in the highest. We just sang that Chris Tomlin song uh, early in the service. Uh, back in those days, it was common uh, in kingdoms for there to be a lot of pomp and circumstance when a, a, a child was born to royalty. You know, there would be soldiers and trumpets and flags and fireworks and big celebration. Uh, there was great anticipation for the birth, and a public statement was made by the king's people. And the angels here are stating with heavenly authority that royalty has been born, that God has come to be with his people, that the long awaited Messiah had finally arrived. Now, uh, verse 14 is where Longfellow gets the phrase of peace on earth. Goodwill to men. The ESV renders it, uh, the second half of the verse, uh, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. 
Um, the NIV, if you have that translation, renders it on peace, excuse me, on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Longfellow uses the translation he probably heard in the Christmas carols of his day back in the early 19th century. Those carols would have been based on the King James translation because it was the only English translation available at that time. And so the King James translation renders Luke 2.14 like this. I'll show it to you on the screen behind me. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So that's why it looks different uh, in your Bible. Now unfortunately, the world often misinterprets this verse to mean that the birth of Christ means God is pleased with the world and that he made peace with the world and has nothing but goodwill towards us. But that's not what it means. I think Longfellow misinterprets this verse to mean, now that Jesus has been born, there should be peace on earth and the end of unnecessary suffering, at least in my life. I think, I think that's how he interprets it, and I think that's what causes him to be sort of despondent on Christmas Day, 1863. But here's what the verse really means. It means that God no longer wants to be at odds with men on earth. Thus, he came with a multitude of heavenly hosts. He came not to conquer earth like an invading ruler from another country, but he came instead to offer peace to those who dwell on earth. How? Well, the Lord offers peace by offering his son as a means of reconciliation. So who is God pleased with then, according to the verse? Well, he's pleased with those who repent of their sin and by faith trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Those are the people that get peace with God. And so that's what the verse means. So the Christmas story makes peace with God possible. And Luke 2.14 is where that refrain comes from of peace on earth and goodwill to men. Next, if you would, turn with me back to Genesis chapter 3. I want to answer, I kind of want to correct or sort of respond to, might be the way to say it, um, Longfellow's struggle with what is God doing? Why do I have so much pain in my life? And so Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 16 to 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, what else does I heard the bells say about God and say about man? Well, here's number two in your outline. There will be no peace on earth until there is no sin on earth. There will be no peace on earth until there is no sin on earth. Longfellow writes in the second verse, In despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. He's referring to the civil war that was going on that had paralyzed his oldest son. Now let me give you some context of uh, Genesis 3, 16 to 19 that we just read. In the early part of Genesis 2, the Lord created Adam, put him in the garden to work it, and told him he could eat from any tree in the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In the latter verses of chapter 2, the Lord creates Eve for the man, and life is good for the first couple. Uh, At the beginning of chapter 3, however, the serpent shows up, tempts Eve to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She encourages encourages her husband to do the same, and sin enters the human race for the first time. In the middle part of chapter 3, God asks the couple why they did not obey him. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. And the Lord boots them all out of the Garden of Eden, basically. Verses 16 to 19 that we just read contain the fallout from the results of Adam and Eve's sin. So for starters, the Lord says... The woman will now experience pain during childbirth and she will have to submit to her husband. Then he tells the husband, your work will become much harder and then you both are going to die. You're going to have a death sentence. Uh, Just as Romans says, for the wages of sin is death. So what we see here is the origin of the sin nature we all inherit as descendants of Adam and Eve. We see separation from God with the first couple kicked out of the garden. Distance is put between them and God. And then we see the consequence of death in Genesis 3.19. So when Longfellow writes, let me bring this all back down to, to, the, to the song. When Longfellow writes, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. He is struggling to reconcile his misinterpretation of Luke 2.14 that we just looked at. And the results of the fall in Genesis 3. The fall created two general types of evil that we all experience. And here's letter A and B on your outline. Letter A is moral evil. Moral evil refers to sin committed by humans that violates God's word. The scriptures teach that we all are victims of sin and we are all culprits of sin. Or in other words, we've all been sinned against, and we all sin against others. Some examples of moral evil can be found just in the daily news. If you turn on the nightly news, you can easily just just record, just keep chicken scratches. How did that news story, was it caused by sin? Yep. Next news story, 
sin, sin, sin. Just about every news story you watch has sin in it. Moral evil causes terrorists to plant bombs at airports. It causes wars and relational conflicts, gossip, slander, scandals, sexual abuse, adultery, divorce, injustice in our justice system. Moral evil causes disgruntled employees to take a gun to their place of work and to shoot their coworkers. Moral evil causes school teachers to have inappropriate relationships with their underage students. Moral evil causes celebrities to overdose on drugs. Moral evil takes place when sinners sin against other sinners. So that's the first fallout from the fall in Genesis 3. Here's the second one, letter B. There's natural evil. It's part of the curse. Natural evil. Natural evil is not caused by any human agent. But instead, by the creation, it's just cursed. It's the result of being outside of the garden, but not in heaven yet. It's the result of being in between the two places. Your insurance company probably calls them acts of God, but they're not God's fault. Um, Your favorite meteorologist probably calls them El Nino or Mother Nature. But some examples of natural evil that are in the news headlines often would be plane crashes, ships that sink, train derailments. It's not the result of sin unless there was um, uh, sinners that, say, neglected to keep safety checks up. But if it's just an accident, an accident, it's the result of moral evil. Um, Cancer, birth defects, viruses, and other diseases. Floods, hurricanes, wildfires, tornadoes, earthquakes. Christ followers live in what theologians call already, but not yet. It means that the promise of heaven is so certain for Christ followers that it's like we are already there, but the fact the Lord hasn't called us home yet is a reminder we're not there yet. Uh, Therefore, we will all experience moral evil and natural evil until we are with the Lord or he returns. This is why Paul said in Acts 14, verse 22, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So as you can see, uh, there will be no peace on earth so long as sin reigns. Someone once said uh, jokingly that temporary peace on earth has only been achieved a few times throughout history. And that was while everyone stood around reloading their guns. So, there will be no peace on earth until there is no sin on earth. Next, if you would, turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. So now we're going to skip forward to the end of the story and see how God brings all this full circle, what his plans are in the future. Revelation 21, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. John writes the book of Revelation. It's a vision that God gave him of heaven and end times events. And so he's recording for us God's plans for the end of the world, basically. 
And so, Revelation 21, verse 1, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Here's the final point on your outline, number three, and that is, there will be peace on earth when Jesus returns to earth. There will be peace on earth when Jesus returns to earth. This is what Longfellow, I think, comes to a conclusion about, or he reaches this conclusion. In the third verse of his song, he says, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth and goodwill to men. So, so, so what, what was Longfellow saying, and what's Revelation 21 saying? Well, Real peace will reign on the earth when the Prince of Peace rules in every heart. And that won't be until the new heaven and the new earth are established. These verses in Revelation 21 reveal the culmination of God's long-range plan for the world. He is working now, and He has been working ever since Genesis 3, to bring everything back together the way it was supposed to be in the beginning, to restore himself and uh, man to himself, excuse me, and also the world. He's going to restore everything back to the way it was in the garden by making, as it says in the text, all things new. The new world will be ruled by Jesus and populated by his followers who no longer have a sin nature. So the song would had definitely been completely devoid of any hope, and despair would have claimed another victim had Longfellow not written this third verse. He found hope in the present by looking to God's plans in the future. He remembered that one day there will be no more wars, no more miscarriages, and no more family members dying. So, there will be peace on earth when Jesus returns to earth. How do we apply this? We know God, God's word calls us to be doers of the word, and so here's two closing applications that uh, I want to leave you with. The first is make sure you're at peace with God. Make sure you're at peace with God. One of the many lies that unbelievers are duped into believing is that they will always have tomorrow to make things right with God. So it leads to procrastination. But this is not true. 
None of us is promised tomorrow. The Christmas story makes it possible for anyone to experience peace in a chaotic world by making peace with God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Once you die, it's too late. You can't ask for a do-over. You will stand before the Lord and give an account for your life. And no one knows when they're going to die. So if you already know the Lord, but you've been running from Him, I want to urge you to keep short accounts with Him and get back with the Lord. If you don't know the Lord, I want to encourage you to put your faith in Christ this Christmas season and stop procrastinating and do it and trust in Him for salvation. Give your heart to Him and start walking with Him. Jonathan Edwards was one of the greatest preachers in American history that ministered during the 18th century. He's known for a long list of resolutions that he wrote over his lifetime. One of his most famous ones addresses this very issue of procrastinating doing business with God. Edwards wrote, I am resolved never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. So he, in other words, he lived as though he only had an hour left to live. He didn't, he didn't mess around with the Lord. He, he took his sin seriously. He took the Lord seriously so that at any time he was ready to be called home. None of us is promised tomorrow, so make sure you've made peace with God by being in a close relationship with his son. If you have questions about this, I would love to speak to you after the service privately and help you in any way you can and to answer questions you might have. Here's the second application I'd like to leave you with. Find God's purpose in your pain. Find God's purpose in your pain. This starts with not expecting heaven on earth. You see, if everything was comfortable and perfect in our lives right now, then heaven wouldn't be heaven. Heaven wouldn't be a relief from anything. In fact, a lot of us would probably just go, eh, I'm ready to go back down to earth. This, is, this isn't so great. Uh, we would all have the benefits of heaven if things were perfect and comfortable here on earth. We'd have the benefits of heaven without Christ. However, two things that make heaven heaven are the fact that Christ will be there and sin won't be. That's, those are at least two things that make it great. And why it'll be a relief to get there for those who know Christ as their Savior. So in the meantime, we can ask the Lord to help us understand how he's using our pain to make us more like Christ. The beautiful lyrics of I Heard the Bells, they were birthed out of such pain that it reminded me of something Charles Spurgeon once said about suffering. Spurgeon writes, we would never know the music of the harp if the strings were left untouched, nor enjoy the juice of the grape if it were not trodden in the wine press, nor discover the sweet perfume of cinnamon if it were not pressed and beaten, nor feel the warmth of the fire if the coals were not completely consumed. The Lord does not waste anything including our suffering. Even our deepest struggles, the Lord has something sweet and beautiful that he wants to bring out of us. And so, I want to encourage you to find God's purpose in your pain.
Well, no matter how scary the nightly news might look, how difficult your year has been, or messed up you feel your life is this Christmas season, be encouraged by the fact that God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, and the right will prevail. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I want to just start off by praying for those that are here today or maybe listening online that do not know your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, please, would you reveal Christ to them this Christmas season? Would you show them that they are a sinner, that cannot save themselves, and that you are a great God who is gracious and merciful and willing to forgive their sin if they will repent and trust in Christ alone for their salvation? Father, I also want to pray for those that might be fighting for joy and lacking peace this Christmas season. Lord, please, would you minister to them? Would you encourage them through the songs of the season, through a timely verse of Scripture, a word of encouragement from a fellow believer? Father, would you, would you help them to focus on what they've gained through the birth of Christ instead of focusing on what they've lost here on earth. We thank you, Lord, that nothing is wasted in your economy, that you turn losses into gains, you turn suffering into growth. We thank you, Lord, that you have promised to work all things together for good for those who love you in order to conform us to the image of your Son. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.